welcome to another episode of the Aquatic Mentors podcast. I'm your host, Katrina Van Eyck, and I wanted to share today the fact that we're back for season two. How exciting! It's our first episode of season two, and thank you for joining us again and listening to the amazing journeys of our aquatic professionals. It's exciting because we are an award-winning podcast now. We were lucky enough to win the Swim Australia Swim Schools Excellence Awards for Small Swim School in Innovation. And I'm really thankful for the work that everyone has done, whether it be listening to our podcast, being featured on it as a guest, and also taking the time to support me as I run this podcast. It's fantastic and great news to be recognised for yeah, giving back in some way to our industry. We've been through a lot last year and, uh, yeah, it was a bit of a crazy year. And for Victoria, it's been a bit up and down as well this 2021. But we're surviving. We're getting there. We're getting through winter and it is great to be back on board. It's taken me a while, but I finally got everything sorted to be able to dedicate some time to the podcast. I also wanted to mention that out of last season, I've put together an ebook, and you can get the ebook. You can download it from our website, aquaticmentors.com.au, or also my regional swim clinics website. So that's regionalswimclinics.com.au as well. You can download a copy of the ebook there and in the ebook, I've put together all the main points that our guests spoke about last year. The best advice they will give new aquatic professionals in the industry as well as anyone wanting to upskill and train through the industry. So really, I'd love for you to check that out and let me know what you think. It's been a labour of love and I really enjoy going back over some of the episodes and really taking a time to note down what people have said and seen such a correlation between answers. So it's good to be able to put that in writing and bring it down into an easy format for people to learn from. And hopefully we can use that to spread the skills and training for those in our industry and help the new professionals coming into our aquatic industry. So jumping on today's episode, in this episode, I interview an amazing professional who has had years of experience in the aquatic field as both a para swimmer and a diversity and inclusion expert. So please extend a big welcome to our podcast for Matthew Hannapol. Matthew has had an amazing career in swimming, representing Australia since 2010, collecting Paralympic gold and bronze at London 2012 Paralympic Games. World Championship Bronze at IPC World Championships in Montreal, Canada in 2013. Three gold and two silver and a bronze at the Paralympic Pan Pacific Championships in Los Angeles in USA in 2014 and competed at the Rio Paralympics 2016 and Gold Coast Commonwealth Games in 2018. During his time in swimming, Matthew has taken many paid and volunteer roles of management centering around diversity and inclusion. In his current role as Diversity and Inclusion Coordinator for the City of Monash Sports and Recreation Department, Matthew has been one of the key players in developing a new program called Integrated Practical Placement for the purpose of giving people with a disability a place to develop workplace skills. Matthew has also used his skills in conjunction with Swimming Victoria to put together the Diversity and Inclusion Committee of which he is now chairperson. He dedicates his life to increasing the profile of Paralympic sport in Australia and the advocacy of people with disabilities and developing an environment where everyone has a fair go in sport. Matthew's interview was recorded some months back, so please be aware that conversations in the interview will include topics that may have changed or be currently happening. Through today's episode, Matt shares some insights into his work, as well as his thoughts on swimming in Australia and where he sees swimming moving to in the future. Please share the hidden gems you find in Matt's interview on our Facebook page, Aquatic Mentors, and you will find all his contact details listed at the end of our show notes. If you want to share your aquatic journey, please contact me via my email, regionalswimclinics at outlook.com. That's regionalswimclinics at outlook.com. I'd love to hear your stories and be able to share them with our listeners. So let's jump in and find out more about Matt's journey in swimming. 
Matt, how did you start your journey in swimming? I started in swimming as every kid does in this country, as a learn to swim student. I must say as well, I was probably the, the student that you would remember but sticks his head under the water and not really listening to the teacher <laughs> very often. <laughs> I took to the water. And the reason I say that is that as a child with a disability and, and my parent, and my mother in particular, wanted to see me be able to achieve everything that is possible in my life. Now, for, for disability just generally, but also cerebral palsy, which is my diagnosis, there was a real push for me to have some time in the water because it's a great therapy option for lots of people, um, regardless if they're of age or, or disability or impairment. And so my mum pushed me to, to see that happen. So from pretty much the age of you know, 18 months, I was in the water, bang, straight in, and never left it to this day. You know, but when we look at sort of competitive swimming, I started at the age of sort of seven, eight at the Lillardale Swimming Club out in the far sort of eastern ranges of, of Melbourne. And I would stay there for about five years before going to getting to the stage where I need to make the move to a high performance club. You know, Lillardale is a great club for, for a lot of, lots of different reasons, but I need to move to a high performance club to, to make the next move and to get an idea what it means to train like an elite athlete. And so I moved to Nutterway in Swimming Club in 2010 and in the lead up to the my first Australian team in Berlin. This was a junior Australian team to Berlin. and uh, It was my first opportunity to go and understand what it means to be on the Australian team and be part of a, a really exciting group of people. You know, that was my first opportunity and um, really uh, that's where I where I started. Wow. What an amazing history in swimming. And to go from there, simple beginnings, getting in because of therapy and making such a difference in your life, swimming has, and to develop to where you are now in your swimming career, that's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I guess to take it on further as well is that, you know, I went to Berlin another uh, after the 2010 trip. I went in 2011 and again in 2012 in the lead up to the uh, selection trials for London. I also did a trip across to Colorado Springs in America. I got an opportunity to, to swim in the pool, the US Training Centre in Colorado Springs, and also to be able to train alongside Bob Bowman's squad when he was up there at that time. Now, Bob Bowman's squad, Michael Phelps, uh, is, was one, one of the members of that, of that team that were there. And to, to train alongside him through those couple of weeks we were there was quite a, a very, very exhilarating experience. Yeah. I, I remember the first time I got really starstruck when I was in my first Australian short course championships in 2008. And I was warming up next to Grant Hackett. Now, Grant Hackett, in the lead up to his last games in Beijing. And so that was, that's the one time I remember being starstruck. The next time was when I was in the next lane with Michael Phelps. And now those feelings of being next to high-performance athletes certainly do come apart, come through again. And, you know, you, you do meet some really great people which still make you feel starstruck. But at that time, Grant Hackett, trained 2008, Michael Phelps. There were some great experiences as we lead into the trials in London. Wow, what experiences. Just to be able to, you know, as a young person going into that to be able to see legends like that in our sport train next to them learn from them see how they act and how they carry themselves around the sport must have made such a big impression on you and changed how in some ways how you acted it did as well and we look from the Paralympic side as well to get to know you know Matt Cowdery as well and to understand the how the Paralympic system system works, you know, but also as I would be in the lead up to London, I'd start to understand what it means to be a Paralympian. In 2011, 2012, we're on teams with the great Brendan Keogh, head coach of the Australian Paralympic team at the time, up to about 2016 it was. And I can certainly trace my roots into my understanding of high-performance sport back to BK and Brendan Keogh's um, 
the way he, you know, trained me in the way that he pointed me in the right direction to what my career would be. And for that, I have a lot for him to thank and being able to have him as a, you know, a coach, even if it wasn't on a home coach basis, but as a, as a lead coach and a head coach of the Paralympic team, you know, you learn a lot from that. So we get to London and, you know, to at 18 years of age to go to the Paralympic Games and to go to what is still considered the best Paralympic Games ever in London. I still think that not just because it was my first Games, but because it was regarded by a lot of people by the best, it was the best Paralympic Games ever. I remember landing in London, but also seeing on TV in Australia, one of the uh, billboards for Channel 4 coverage was that, thanks for the warm-up, referring to the Olympics, and but the Olympics was the warm-up act for the real games. And so that was, uh, that was an exciting thing to see. Yep. But uh, London was a great great experience, you know, to go there as an 18-year-old, to, to be part of a relay to be able to walk out for Australia and, you know, have the same announcer that we have at Nationals, you know, Graham as well. And, you know, we had, we had Nationals in New South Wales and South Australia and to have Graham as the announcer was a really ex- exciting moment. It really calmed you down at the, at the Paralympics because you're walking out representing Australia, Matt Hartnepal, it's the same voice. Yeah. You, now, you can get yourself in the mindset that, hey, this is not – the London Aquatic Centre. This is back in the, back in Australia, back in the Adelaide Aquatic Centre, back in the you know Sydney Olympic Park. It just felt felt really normal. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, the Australian team, it felt like we were in a home pool advantage in that sense to have Graham's voice over the over the speakers. Yeah. He was a really exciting man. He's been so so involved, you know, in in the sport there in South Australia, and so I'm very. Very lucky to have Peter Graham's knowledge in that space. That's an amazing, such an influence to have and at a peak time when most people would be coming in and sort of nervous and panicking in some ways for some to come in and just feel relaxed because you know that voice. That's And yeah. to have the whole process of it, it's, it's just like swimming at home. And yeah. I think about Peter, you know, Peter Graham's, he came from a, a background which I feel so humbled by because it, it feels it feels so like a lot of the our swimming community that he was tapped on the shoulder to be an announcer at a local swing carnival in South Australia for him to be tapped on the shoulder like every other parent because say hey you know give this a shot you know by his, his, his then club present and then he would you know slowly be tapped on the shoulder for bigger and bigger announcing roles the state championships at the nationals and then to be finally tapped on the shoulder to go to Sydney in 2000. You know, his stories, if you have an opportunity to listen to Peter, Peter Graham's story as an announcer in this sport, it's a um, it's something that I find incredibly interesting. But, yeah, as I said, to walk out for Australia and, you know, the 100 backstroke to my first final and hear his voice, that makes it a lot easier. Yeah. And I placed fifth in that final in the 100 backstroke and it was my the PB best performing time Australian record. Oceania record in that race. Wow. So best performing athlete in that race and yeah, from yeah. Australia. You know, to, to also do very well in the heat swim of the two relays I was involved and to to hand it off to, to the final finals team. Yeah. And to, to, to win gold and bronze in that games was yeah, I'll, I'll never forget it. Wow, that is amazing. Such an amazing story to go through. And to achieve, and I think to see, I mean, I can, our listeners won't be able to see, but I can see the passion when you talk about it in your face. And I think it's just amazing that feeling coming back and the achievements you've done in your life. And in leaving London as well, I had a sense of, you know, I can now make this a real career now. I can make and really get into the, the guts of what it means to be an elite athlete. You know, I'll go to the 2013 World Championships the following year, place third, my first uh, individual medal performance at a World Championships. To, and a, a bit of a story then as well is that not many people knew in, in the, the morning in the lead, lead up to that race. I had a seizure during the night in the lead up to that race okay. um, before the heats. and then in, So I swam the heats in a very 
delirious state. I was told by my coach at the time, just get through to the final and prepare yourself for the, for the, the final session. I was, at the time, the fastest seed time going into that race in the morning and in, in, in for the well, overall time. My, my PB time was a 108. And so going into the final, you knew that you were the best performing athlete on paper, but I was out there in lane one. And so I probably overswam my performance in the final and still managed to come third, but I was still disappointed in myself in that result there because the time of 111, which is what I did in that final, was well over my PB time and my PB time would have been a gold medal performance. So I still look back at that as a, as a bit of an unfortunate situation. You can't change the medical sometimes. And you know, when you're that fatigued after a, for those that do have seizures and have epilepsy, they are, you don't understand that you know, you've got to take with what you can get the next day. I'd run a marathon in the, during the previous night. That's what people say about epilepsy. So, you know, we'll take, take what we can get from the 2013 performance, but we'd move on to Parapampax, multi-gold medal, silver, gold, bronze, the whole lot in multiple events at Parapampax in Los Angeles in 2014. Yeah. But I'd come back to Australia in 2014 and, and need to have surgery on my shoulder. That's my biggest adversity, I'd say, in my career is that my shoulder was really in a place where it needed to to be reconstructed or give some in a way. The rotator cuff muscle had completely come off the, the bone and so it needed to be put stitched back together. I had been training apparently with that injury for the best part of you know two or three years and because of my left side of my shoulder being my, my preferred side, my power was constantly coming through my left side. So I was overusing it so frequently. I wouldn't get back to peak performance until about the selection trials for 2016. And initially I wasn't part of the 2016 team. I actually missed out on the selection by about 0.5 of a second, but was put back into the team after a withdrawal from a swimmer. So I'm incredibly lucky to have had to go to Rio in that situation. But if you've listeners have watched a Netflix series called Rising Phoenix, you would have known that the the Paralympics in 2016 was a bit touch and go from a financial perspective. A lot of people didn't know if it was going to happen. And a lot of the, the events for a lot of different sports were removed or merged for a lot of swimmers and also a lot of different sports. So certainly Rio was a very different experience to what London was. Yeah. Wow, and I don't know if that's common knowledge for a lot because I, I didn't know myself. I think it's amazing to go from an Olympics like London, a Paralympic, and then coming to something like Rio where it's completely different and changed and you don't know what you're swimming or even if you're swimming. That would have been such a, a hard experience to go through and required you to pull on so much. Yeah, you know, I think, the team staff certainly kept us away from that knowledge as well. I'm sort of learning this knowledge in retrospect. Okay. And I mind you, even as a Paralympian, watching Rising Phoenix on Netflix was a really insightful experience to, to learn a bit more about what was going on in the background during the Rio and London Games, for that matter. And so... To come home, finaled in all my events in Rio, but no medals in, in uh, championships. Did my fastest time in my 50-metre freestyle, broke my own personal PB time, Australian record, Oceania. So my 50-metre times and my 100-metre times were as good as it could be. It's just probably the longer events and my other strokes weren't to scratch. We'd really focused in the lead-up to Rio. Given my shoulder was only just coming back online, that we only had to really focus on the on the sprint events because of my training levels and that sort of thing. So come back from Rio, really decided to push on again to, for another four years. And that I took probably about an extended break from that, uh, from swimming to get an understanding of what I wanted to do. Took up a casual lifeguard role somewhere and uh, did that for over the, over the summer after after Rio 
and then after the summer of lifeguarding came back. 2017, a bit of a quiet year, didn't go on any teams that year. Just, you know, train at home and get involved in, you know, other things within clubs and swimming on a domestic level. Uh, and then came back on the international scene for 2018 for the Commonwealth Games. For those of your listeners that aren't aware, the only championships where the Olympic team and the Paralympic team come together is at the Commonwealth Games. So, and a lot of people have said that, oh, why doesn't the Olympic and Paralympic team always be together? That's true inclusion. Why isn't the Olympics and Paralympics together at the same event? Simply, it comes down to scheduling. To schedule that many events in that period of time to make sure that all athletes have peak performance, that's the the reason we're doing that. But for when there is a limited events option at on the Commonwealth Games for Paralympics, we are allowed to have a smaller team and we're able to have some selected classification events. And so I was part of that team and I was incredibly great, grateful to be part of that home games team. Wow. So much experience and so much diversity, I think, in the teams that you've been on, the competitions you've done, but also the way you speak about your achievements and your races. It's just amazing to see the understanding. And I suppose that comes with all high performance swimmers that, yeah, how you look at your races. And, uh, you know, you learn this over time. You know, when I was a kid, you had no, you're just a kid in the pool. You'll yeah. learn to love it. But then it becomes more of a passion and it becomes a little bit of a job, but it's a job you love. One of the things a lot of people really don't recognize is that a lot of athletes don't have many great job opportunities post career because all they've done is swimming. They may have done a university degree possibly to, to keep their mind alive beyond swimming, but too often swimmers come out of the sport without any job experience. And in some way, that's why I did that lifeguard stint after, after Rio was to, to put my toe in the water of, of having something other than swimming on my CV, which leads me to the role that I am in now at Monash. But I'll get to that later. I think to be part of an Australian team on home soil, to walk out for Australia at the opening ceremony, because I hadn't been to any other opening ceremony at London or Rio, it was a, a really, truly amazing experience. It's exhilarating. The hairs on your neck stand back even today about that. Uh, every time I watched a video that I took, you know, with, with your phone as well, you, you have on from walking out on the opening ceremony, it, I look at that every every so often. And even watching that again just makes your hairs on the back of your neck stand. And... You know, I have loved my entire career that I've been part of. And with Tokyo sort of in the up in the air at this stage, you know, some people say it's going to happen. Some people say it won't. You know, with my professional career now, I'm starting to feel a little bit more comfortable moving away from competitive swimming now. I think that I found a new love yeah. in being involved in, you know, programs, getting essentially standing on the other side of the fence yeah. and empowering more opportunities for people of disability in Paralympic sport, you know, where I didn't have that myself. We're now in a, in a position in Paralympic swimming, in inclusion within sport and recreation, where we can really challenge the norms that we've been living with for the last, you know, ever since I've been alive. So that's something that I'm really keen to do now. I've never formally said I'm retired. I think I probably just can safely say uh, you won't see me on the international scene again. It's more just you'll see me at nationals, you'll see me at states, you might see me at a couple other competitions here and there, but I think safely can say internationally you may not see me out there on, because the commitment that's required to be an international athlete, I can't do that with the, the, the sort of work that I'm doing with yeah, Monash yeah. now. It's now starting to become more of a, a priority for me. And I recognise that, but my shoulder is now coming up as another issue yet again. And so that there's a couple of things that make me more comfortable even more to start moving away, at least from the international stage. I really like that. I like how it's that next step in life, moving on, 
realizing your other passions, but being able to put what you've learned through swimming back into swimming. And I wanted to touch on that a bit more, but just quickly, first I wanted to ask about being a lifeguard with a disability. I suppose it comes across you know, a certain level of fitness to be able to pull someone out. And I love the thought that someone with disability can get in and be a lifeguard because coming from trying myself and like having all the knowledge myself but not being able to achieve it because my swim time was too slow, (laughs) I think there's so many people that look at lifeguard and think you have to be physically fit, you know, that prime specimen to be able to get out there and do that. But to be able to show them that diversity and say, no, you can do that with the disability, I think that's amazing. Can you share advice or, you know, things like that for people who have a mild disability that can still get involved? I think that one of the things that I'm doing at the moment at Monash is a a placement program for people with disability to get their first foot in the door of both a certificate one in work education, but also their LSV for lifeguard their Oswim certificate, their CPR first aid. They'll go next year for 12 months. They'll have 10 students that all have disabilities. They'll all complete the lifeguard course. And we will work with Lifesaving Victoria Oswim to ensure to get them through. However, hard, because we look at our aquatics industry in terms of employment with disability. Our demographics, we are... Generally, if we're looking across the board, quite a white and a quite a very, I think it makes up only 0.5% of our, our population in terms of employment space of, with, dis, with disabilities. It is, or sorry, should, should I say, like they, they've disclosed that disability to their organisations. And so my advice to, to people with disability that want to go and get the lifeguard course, go and talk to Lifesaving Victoria directly but also try and find a friendly centre that's prepared to take you on board, to coach you, to train you, and is prepared to, you know, to, to put you through and to fight for you and to fight for your right to have employment in this space because there are certain limitations to some parts of the lifeguard course, but there is so many disabilities or impairments that is that can work within lifeguarding. So... Yeah. And for swim teaching for that matter too, which is the whole idea of this program we're running next year at Monash. And so I won't stop until the diversity piece at, in, the, in our sport and recreation industry has changed. Yeah. I won't leave this industry. I won't stop my... Uh, I am fully committed to being disruptive in this industry to make sure there's change in that space. Wow. You heard it here first. Matt's going to make the moves and get this happening. That's fantastic. I think we need more people like you standing up and really making that change. I'll say this as well. It's not just me, but it's also the Active Monash team. The Active Monash team, so that's the City of Monash, that's our diversity team and our recreation services are fully committed to see change in this space. We are all committed to disrupting the industry in this space, to change it up and to ensure that people have, with disability particularly, have equal right to be able to get a job in this industry and make sure that our deployment plans, the way that we onboard people with disability, is changed to ensure they get a job. You know, I had my own problems with getting lifeguard jobs in different centres. I was given a chance in one particular centre, but there was another centre, which will remain unnamed, that rejected me simply because I did things safely but differently to the way that they would normally train their staff so I won't assert what that means under the law but you know we need to ensure that every single centre complies with the Disability Discrimination Act and the way that people get a chance to get employed. And that's the thing a lot of it is just maybe changing the way we train maybe changing the way we onboard people. They're still physically and mentally able to do these things, but it is just changing that background that's been there, the paperwork, the bureaucracy that's been there for so long, just changing it and adapting the training in a way that 
can give these people the empowerment to have an employment and work in a, a great industry like the aquatics. Yeah, I find the people that work in this in this industry are very inclusive. However, some of the policies, procedures, and practices of this industry do not align with that view. So yeah. it's just that. And look, that as I said, I'm I, a lot of my language is designed to be disruptive and to shake it up. I'm calling people out because that's what we should be doing. Mm. I'm not being disrespectful. I'm not doing anything like that. It's just that we need to see change. It's now time. There was a huge movement in America, in America about women's rights too as well and ensuring that people with, you know, women particularly get rights to be able to be heard as well in America. Completely different situation, but we need to ensure that, you know, there is a movement that goes towards disability and the way that people get a chance to get full employment just like anybody else. The same as women get a chance to be employed in leadership roles. Kamala Harris last week, for her to be the vice president-elect of America as a not just a woman but also a black American and an Asian American as well, to see her ascend to the vice presidency. I said this on my LinkedIn the other day. I see a crack in the ceiling. The final crack will be when she potentially ascends to the, the presidency. And I think that changes the situation for a lot of people, I think, particularly that not only that she's a woman, but also the fact she is also from an ethnic background as well. Mm. Yeah, and there's definitely so much changing in the area and it's great to be able to put that forward and that you are one of the voices that's changing that. So out of all of that history and all that we've just spoken about, what would be your biggest take or biggest lesson that you've learned from your swimming journey? Lessons. It's interesting. I feel that one of the biggest lessons I've learned is to ensure that I've always been able to get the opportunities that I have the right to have. Good one. But also I understand that through my swimming, and I learned this through my work now, is that I know what it means to work hard. I learned that at Nutterwadding. I learned that at the AIS when I was at, in Canberra as well. And then some of those skills and some of those things I learned around accountability, respect and teamwork were probably some of the things that came from my swimming career. And I can apply that now to the workplace. I'd say that that's probably some of my learnings, but also learning how to educate people in a way that is respectful and can come across in a way that goes, yeah, it's time. It's right to do. I've learned that confidence over time. That's not something that's been happening, you know, since I was 12 years old. You know, I wanted to change the world. I think that more recently in my Monash role, I've been able to gain the confidence to be able to change a culture within that organisation, which is, as I said, an industry which is at its general core, not as inclusive as we would like. So we're able at Monash to be able to be a bit of a leader in that space to change what is expected. And we need those ones that stand out and take the bull by the horns and get the industry happening because that's how industry change is made. And I really like those connections on your lessons, but they're life lessons as well. Mm. And I really like how they connect with disability too. It's not just... A, um, in my view, having a, a mild disability, it's always given me, I think, um, being around disability, the empathy to understand people's feelings a lot more and yeah. to understand people's backgrounds a lot more and be willing to learn those things. And I really think that's an advantage with disability. And I think it makes you more mature in a way because you can see that part of people. You're not just glossing over them you're understanding where they come from and and what's happening to them and I think that's really shown in your experience as well and I sort of sit here and you know I've seen a lot of recruitment panels for a lot of our staff now and that's designed to be able to change the makeup of our staff cohort to be more inclusive 
but also to peer it to be more diverse. Now, Monash obviously is the second or possibly third most multicultural local council area in the state. If we don't have a workforce that reflects the community, we are not serving our residents the way we should be. They should be able to hold a mirror to our staff and it looks straight out to the way that the community looks like. 13.5% of our our residents are people with disability. Just a tick over 50% are born overseas. Our makeup of our staff should be exactly the same. Now, we've got a very multicultural workforce at Monash. We do. However, in terms of disability, we don't even hit the 13%. It's me and one other staff member at this stage. And that will change with the program we're running next year. But the idea of quota targets as well, both on on all different cohorts, women, age, disability, is something that might be needed. It, it It shouldn't be needed. But the way that unconscious bias goes in a recruitment panel as well, which is not just at Monash, this is in, in business in general. You know, we need to put ourselves in the way we recruit to ensure that we're able to have a, a workforce that reflects the community. That's your tagline. You know, that's the, that'll be up in lights for our, our strategic plan coming up in a couple of months. And to have a workforce that reflects the community will be a bit of the buzzword, hopefully for the industry going forward. Yeah, very true. That's definitely what we need. And I think looking at all your highlights in your career that you spoke about, is there one that's been the biggest highlight for you or is it just accumulation of events and races and that you've been part of? When you talk about highlights, I think walking to the stadium, both at closing and opening ceremony of, of the Gold Coast Commonwealth Games, home games, not even my races, but the opening and closing ceremony, I think that was pretty pretty big. I think home games, Commonwealth Games in general, it felt awesome. I think that really goes up there in, in my in my career. I think that certainly the gold medal has to be there, you know, for obvious reasons. But the people you meet, the people you see, and the people you get to know on these trips still remain quite a big highlight of what I do. You know, people I, I can go and see in, in Germany and Ireland and in the UK popping for a coffee or, or to have lunch and or stay a few nights. You know, that's, you know, post-COVID, you know, hopefully is possible. But it's just something that those are where my highlights sit. But I don't think it's something that is formed over one particular moment beyond those I think it's something that's formed over a long time and it informs my decision making on the Swim Victoria board but also in my role at Monash and all the other things that I'm involved with yeah I think that it's provided me with a sense of a viewpoint which I may have not had if I was not a high performance athlete traveling overseas and I really like that because it's something that's become quite prominent in this podcast especially when I talk to high performance whether it be coaches or swimmers is the fact that a lot of their highlights in their journey, you know, as a a pedestrian in the sport, or you sit back and you think, oh, it would be those races and going to the Olympics and, you know, winning the gold medal and things like that. But a lot of the time it is the fact that walking out into the crowd for opening and closing ceremony and just those steps that are involved in the process of achieving that gold medal performance. I really like how it, it is not just about the final result, it's the process building to that. And as well, I think that we come home as well and, we, and the coaches that have coached you along the way, my current coach, Matt Belavajani at, at Camwell Grammar, Michael Skrodsky, who's a coach at Doncaster now, but was my previous coach at CA Tritons before he moved to Poland and came back. People like Amanda Isaac, Rowan Taylor, um, these are some really big names in our sport, and but they are incredibly talented individuals, and they have formed a lot of my personality as well. I remember Matt saying to me, Matt, my current coach, so there's Coach Matt, swimmer Matt at the club. <laughs> it's very funny around that, but 
one of the things that I really enjoyed and hearing about was that I walked into the front door of, of CA Tritons, Kerry Grammer, when my when I first moved to the club, and he, their first thoughts were, oh shit, how do I coach this kid? I wasn't a kid then; I was I was well and truly an adult then. But how do I, how do I coach this kid? Because I don't know much about disability. I don't know how much to 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 go about that. Yeah. And I think that Michael felt the same way when I when I came on board, and they threw me a couple of test sets. Did reasonably well. I was about thirty percent slower on my time cycles, other than the rest of the group, which they modified the sets to. So rather than doing 100-meter test sets, I might do 75 because we had a short course pool mm-hmm. and I'd do, you know, different rotations. But I find that, you know, that sort of thinking and reaction to a person with a disability coming into the to your pool is consistent across the state in terms of coach knowledge and initial reactions. So with what we're doing with Victoria, I think that's pretty core as to what we want to achieve and change is that, when someone with a disability walks in through your front front door of your club, you are able to adequately coach and understand how to support that person without question. Yeah, that's great. And not have that oh shit moment and this poor swimmer standing there going, well, I thought you might be able to help me, but maybe not. (laughs) And I'll say as well to your listeners as well, and I understand I work with a lot of parents, as well every single parent of a child with a disability has gone through that process of feeling that they have to coach the person that's taking their kid yeah along the way yeah and i find that that shouldn't be in in this sport of swimming which is meant to be inclusive the parent shouldn't always have to go and fight for their child yeah no i look to my parents as well very early in my, and this, this is consistent with every other child of a, a parent of a child with disability that I know is the idea of a bubble around that child because they've had to fight for that child, their child for so long for them to have equal right, equal opportunity. Yeah. And the more that we can provide coaches with an opportunity to be able to train themselves about the appropriate language to use and the proper way to speak to their parents and be able to engage those people, the better we are going to be as a sport. So true. And I think that's a core thing that we need to address. Yeah. And pretty quickly. Yeah. And I think that's something I know coming from the country, we're a lot different to Metro. And, you know, it is about the language. It's how you include them. But also, like you said, making the parent feel comfortable. I know, you know, my mum fought for me a lot. And I even find now that if your kids are not on the standard box that fits in what schools find normal, and I'm probably just getting on my pedestal here and having a bitch, but <laughs> if, if they're not, you know, it doesn't even have to be including of disability. If they're just not fitting into that normal box, then straight away you have to fight with all authorities. Yeah. People are looking for those things now to nag on. And it really frustrates me and that's something we're going through with our kids now. And I just think, you know, that, like you said, these parents are educated in that stuff. They've had to do it for so long and they will do it and they will jump at it. You may not mean anything by it, but they will be jumping on it and saying, well, this is my child, this is what they can do. And you might think, oh, shit, they're angry at me or I've done something wrong, but it's just what they've had to do commonplace and they do it all the time. But I'll tell you what, it's a huge relief and I've had this experience too. It's a huge relief when you have parents that walk into a club or a swimming school or any type of program where they the penny drops and they realise that the program has their child's interest best at heart without yeah. having to say anything at all. Yeah. That is so, so, so rare, but they, they do happen and they do, they do exist. And that is empowering for the parent. Mm. empowering for the child and a tick of approval, I guess, from the coach that the training and development that we've done so far have been really, really something and really yeah. done, achieved it. So 
for a long time, even even into well into my twenties, my parents still are willing to jump in to assist. They're still at that, even though I'm quite an independent person now. They're quite prepared to do what was the the good fight, but they always had to do. Yeah. So, and they're slowly learning to release that, but that is something that is hardwired to parents that have children with a disability. And as you say, Katrina, they're ready to jump in there and educate right from the start. And you actually give a pretty good scenario in, in that case. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's good because you get the understanding of that kid personally because disability and inclusion is something that's so individual for every person. You can't say someone like yourself with cerebral palsy. You can't put someone next to you that's also got cerebral palsy and measure up and have a mirror image of that person. Like it can affect people in so many different ways under one classification. So I think that's where that individual and knowledge from the parent and each parent knows their kid as much as these ones come in and say I know you know I've done my education course I know what kids are like they don't know what that personal child and that individual is going through so have that parent on board if you can connect with them makes a difference correct I think Katrina you touched on the important point of that I've had a child and this is for teachers too swimming teachers too I've had plenty of teachers, I've had plenty of coaches say, I've had X disability, I know how to apply it to this same person yeah. with the same disability. Now, my cerebral palsy is pretty much one in a million. To have the same symptoms, the same impairments, everyone's different is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And so you can't apply the same situation and say, right, I've got to teach it to this individual the same way as you the previous person I had with a like ASD or cerebral palsy or whatever. And I think that the core of the course, the teach swimming to kids with disability course, is that accepting and understanding that every child is different, regardless they've got a disability or not. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, how they learn is different, how they act different, how they even move in the water is different. My husband's Dutch and six foot I think most of his family are between six foot two and six foot four so I have a giant for a boy he's five years old and you could put him in a class with 10 years old kids and he looks exactly the same he's solid he's tall he's gangly and everyone looks at him and expects that he's meant to be 10 years old and he should be doing this and he should be doing that when he's five years old and he's still developing and I think that's it like people don't realize that you know, they take a first glance at a kid or at a person and they don't take in any knowledge of how old they are or what they've done or what ability they are. And they don't understand that they've got to talk to and teach those as a broad group. And I understand you're going into a class with 25 kids. You can't individually make it. And we're lucky in swimming with, you know, we've got such small class sizes, we can work individually. But there's so many factors involved and he learns different. He likes different subjects to his sister who's not as tall and a lot more solid. So she's then got other influences happening. And I think it's just crazy how two kids from one family can be totally different but packed the same way when they go out into different areas in life. I think you very much hit the point there. And, you know, my feeling is as well is that there's still a lot to do in that space and, I've said this so many times is that, you know, I, I had a coach that had a, a cerebral palsy, high-performance athlete, mind you, classification S8 in swimming, and said that I've coached cerebral palsy, I know how to coach you. Now, I'm two classifications lower than this person. Yep. I am completely different to that individual. And the logic that even at the age I was, at the age of 14, I could understand this concept of you can't apply that same, you know, same disability, same training outcomes. I just think that's – it's the same thing. You're tall, small. You've got to be ready to to apply different situations and different people, different personalities, a whole lot. There's, there's no one other person like you in the world. Hmm. And so that's the way you should be coaching them. Yeah. Yeah. Very well put. I like that. So you've spoken about a lot of your coaches and a lot of people involved in your journey. 
and how they've mentored you through and how they've developed you as a person, as a swimmer. Is there anyone else that stands out in your journey? I think there's a, there's a couple of people, like up until pre-COVID as well. I had a training partner in, in Lived Endorfer and a number of other training partners along the way, you know, um, at Lillardale, Danny Elgar. You know, people's names you may not know, but they're people that I really looked up to and, and are genuine friends to this day. And I find that, you know, the people you train with as well, not just your coaches, can be a real, a real influence in who you become. Yeah. And they say, you know, the, the people you're around as friends as well genuinely do influence the person you do become. And even at work, I, you know, at Monash, I, Shannon Stab, my manager, Shannon gave me a role at, at Monash when I had, you know, little to no experience in of aquatics management. But I knew how to apply diversity and inclusion in a sport environment to that. And she taught me from the ground up how to be a manager. Wow. And I feel that however long I, I sit under her, she's with the organisation, I'm working in that situation, I'll be forever grateful for the, for the way that she's coached me. And I say coach, I don't say manage, because that's something that's so key into becoming a good leader is you're able to coach and foster their growth as a person, yep. not to micromanage, not to do anything other than other than that. And I find that, you know, I've said this to her many times, is that privately is that she really is one of the, the best, better people I've, I've sat under in terms of coaching. And, and again, come back to coaching rather than managing because it's just not it's not a it's not a manager it's not a manager employee relationship you know we make decisions together on the inclusion and diversity policy it's not like you must do this i want you to go and do that it's like what do you think about this let's make that decision together and i'll throw something and say you know what do you think about this is there anything else i should be adding not a manager employee relationship that would be very typical and so from a, a business point of view but also on a, on a friend level as well, Shannon's been a, a, re- a really great person too. And it's amazing to have that respect between each other, that she's been able to share her wisdom with you, knowing what you can bring to the role and seeing those talents you have, then to know that, okay, these are the little bits that we've got to work on to bring you up to speed to be able to work in the business but then respecting what talents you have to be able to learn from you as well. And they do say with mentors, you actually learn more than from your mentees than what you actually give them. So I think that's fantastic that she's taken that time to really respect your talents as well. Yeah. And like over the years, I've had different leadership styles in terms of coaches. And I think I best respond to collaborative relationships when you've got your manager or your coach. You know, I've had a manager my entire life, as in a coach. That uh, that same employee-manager relationship is the same in swimming. I want you to go and do this set. I want you to go and do this swimming. I want you to go and do this, this, and this. So, you know, I've had a manager my entire life in that sense. But I've responded to coaches the best way when it's a decision you make together. Yep. Many coaches I've had, I'm sorry, I've had some coaches that are more authoritarian in terms of their style, and I don't respond well to that. You know, that's been never the way I do things. No, but having said that, I respect that some people have an authoritarian style and you've got to work with that. No management style is is better than the other, but there certainly are some that suit individuals better than others. Yeah, yeah. And I think also it comes from wanting to be involved in your own career and what you're doing to be independent enough to be able to make those decisions. Mm. And, you know, I think that Shannon really, I, you know, I have an incredibly a lot of loyalty to this role because of the manager I have. Yep. That's, just, that's just how I say it. There's certain other opportunities that have come up along the way and I've turned them down because I feel very comfortable where I am. Yep. A lot of people say, you know, send me an email saying, hey, you'd be good at this job. I have no interest in moving. You know, when you love the people you work with and you love what you're doing, you, have, you know, regardless of the amount of hours you're doing, you, you, there's no reason to move. Mm, that's right. Yeah. And that's what we still strive for, isn't it? To be able to 
do what we love and love what we do and you don't work a day in your life then. That's exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> you're living, you're the epitome of that. <laughs> uh, I, I'd say uh, when I first got this job about two and a half years ago, I didn't see it as a job. I didn't see it as a, I don't care about the money yeah. at all. I would do this for nothing. The job I do today and the, the, and the things I do, I do for nothing. Now people say, you've got to earn your bread somehow, and that's fair enough, but, but I would like to buy a house one day. But <laughs> at, some, at some stage, you know, I don't really care about what's coming in. I, I care about the impact I have on the people that, are, that these programs are set up, are designed to do. Yeah. I intend to change people's lives with the programs we do and, and also, you know, as I say before, really... Uh, shake the industry up yeah wow that's amazing such insight and to be so young to have that as well that's fantastic one day i'll be able to stand up at a conference and say this sort of stuff as well and you know i look forward to the day when shannon and i can sit and have a conversation like i'm having with you and be reflective of what we've achieved in the last three years to, to date but what i would imagine it's got a couple of years to many years still to come, where we can sit and reflect on what we've done in, in this era. We, we talk about this being an era because there's been so many changes in the diversity and inclusion role, my current role, in previous years. And so to be able to go through this era of Shannon and myself in this for Monash, it will be good to record that somewhere, somehow, with a conference note to sit there and have a conversation for the best part of an hour and just talk about what we've achieved because I feel like people can learn from that. Mm. I look forward to the moment when we can do that. It'll be a bit of a culmination of a lot of things we've done. Yeah, yeah. It'll be amazing to see that journey and to be able to share it for people, like you said, to learn from. So out of everything you've done, what advice would you give to a new swim teacher or coach or someone working in... Uh, a management role coming into the industry? I think that it's about having a mentor. Not It's not just your manager um, as well. To so go and seek out other knowledge as well. Seek to make connections. Make yourself known to the industry because the more that you can learn, the more people you can reach out to and there are people that are prepared to coach you. I've mentored swim teachers. I've mentored staff before. But... I find that seek to educate yourself and seek to be known. I think that that's the best way of doing things and be part of a change. doesn't matter what that change is, but seek to have a job that's not just nine to five, clock in, clock out. Seek to make a difference. If you're not doing that, you're probably in, in a job that's probably not best for you. Yeah. Because you need to have a passion, you need to have a desire. But I believe that you should be in a role that where you believe you can make a change to someone. Well said. Very well said. And hopefully we can all have that chance as swim teachers, coaches and managers to be able to bring that to fruition. You know, and for swim school managers as well, it's looking at your program and saying, Am I just doing core business? Am I doing the best for my community? Yes, good to make a profit. Always good to make a profit. <laughs> yeah. Always make a profit. I'm not, I'm not, not averse to that. But make sure that you should be also doing things that change lives for people. Yeah. Whether that's coming up with a, a fee structure or a system which allows more people to come to the business and more people to access swimming lessons. You know, there's the YMCA Open Open Doors program, for example, as a clear example of what I mean by that. It's about having programs that bring more people to your swim school and ultimately, eventually, boost your profit line. But knowing that some of these programs start off as uh, at a negative cost to the business makes a, a positive outcome in terms of community, eventually will become a profit. But right now about making community outcomes and post-covid community outcomes has to be what you do yeah yeah 
swim schools are really keen to start getting money coming in the door, and I understand that. But what small program can you come up with that is going to really get people back into the pool and, and getting involved in, in swim school again? Yeah, and that's the thing. It is community-based. What works with your community may not work with others, but you can, if you tap into that community, you've got that endless supply of participants coming through your program and you can make such a difference in that community, especially if you start off small and just keep chugging away at it, keep plugging away and you'll get better and better and bigger and bigger. And, you know, the community and diversity and inclusion go hand in hand. Ooh, that's you know, right. they're, they're the brother and sister in terms of the way we, we operate big leisure centres. My organisation, the community, our active communities coordinator and the diversity and inclusion coordinator are in the same department they sit alongside each other but they are very separate in what they do one is about engagement one is about creation of programs and there's an element as well of of growth and to see more more growth in in terms of how many people are accessing our programs and that can be the same in any in any facility Mm, that's right yeah so for you what does swimming look like in the future competitive swimming looks like we've got 11.5% 11.5% of our country are people with disability. Our membership should have been 11.5% people with a disability. So if I do the math on that, we should have not 40 members in Victoria, but over just a tick over 1,000, if I so apply that logic. Something like 40% of people in Australia are born overseas. Our membership needs to look like that too. And so I think that for me, the future is to have a membership that reflects the demographic of the country we live in. And from there, we create programs which further engage those people. It's not about high performance. It's not about, but right now, post-COVID especially, and that's what we need to look at in the next probably 18 months to two years, or even beyond that, is to focus on baseline level programs to get people to love swimming again. Yeah. Remember what swimming was when you were a kid and when I was, when certainly 15, 20 years ago when I was a kid too, I remember that interclub and going, doing head-to-head racing with other clubs that are local to you, which is a huge part of regional events as, as well and certainly doesn't happen as much in, in metro as, as, it, as it used to do. I think that, we just need to go back to basics. That's the future of swimming in, 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 in the, very much in the short term. Yeah. But in the long term, looking at diversity and inclusion and looking how we can apply that to our sport and the similar can be said about the swim school community as well. Yeah, I really like that. And it is, it is getting back to basics just to get us back out there and then how can we include everyone into our sport to yeah generate numbers and generate that participation but wellness for everyone and the water safety for everyone as well yeah awesome so last question I'm going to throw at you how can we as an individual and an industry promote and develop learn to swim and the competitive swimming to encourage more participants but do all of that with less funding my response for those that are listening online i have looked away from the camera and started to be very perplexed on that question it's <laughs> a good one just to end it very uh, look it means i think i've answered this question in the, in the previous statement is that yeah. it's yeah. very much about looking at what can be done at low cost to engage your community and there are a lot you can do on the smell of all your rag it doesn't need grant money to do it to do this People use, you know, grants as a way to, an excuse to don't go and do something. Go and do something because it's the right thing to do, not because there's a grant out there or, or there's something available to you. So let me say this, is that that's really important that do what you can with the resources you have to engage the community and then use grants to be able to turbocharge your initial thinking. Well said. Because a lot of what, you know, grant or programs look for is what do you have established and what can you use this grant money to build on top of? So having an established program of some description that is along the same lines as what you're applying for helps immensely. 
So grant money very much is used for to, to turbocharge what's already in existence. So I think that's for me my suggestion on that. I don't know if it's the right answer, but I think that's <laughs> getting close to it. That is a really good answer. So I think one of the best I've had. I really like that. It and it follows along the same lines of of what a lot of people said of just getting out there, seeing what your community needs and developing something to engage them but just giving it a go using the resources that you have like you said and then on top of that being able to boost it it's really good to think of grants in that way instead of trying to quickly put a program together and you know when a suitable grant comes up or have a program and then go and try and search for a grant that matches it because they never do perfect well thanks Katrina for having me a really great chat and hopefully we can do it again some other time as well yes definitely there's so much more we can cover and i just thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with everyone i have learned so much myself and there'll be a lot more that people will bring out of this so thank you thanks katrina